0: This is a show where my dad and I talk about work and how to enjoy it, and we also provide a weekly housing market update and provide a quick answer to common mortgage questions. Please enjoy the Dirty Troughs podcast from Cleveland Street Mortgage. Alright, thanks for watching the Dirty Troughs podcast. This week's episode, we're going to be talking about money and if it's a good motivation for work, Um, but we are going to start with our weekly housing market update, Um, so I'll turn that over to you, Dad. What do we have going on in the housing market this week? Anything, any major changes,
1: anything? Uh, probably this week could be more impactful on the mortgage rate side than maybe, you know, uh, there's, there's not anything really drastic happening in the housing market. No big changes, you know, from the last time we were here. Uh, it's still adjusting. Properties are sitting longer. There's more uh, time to consider offers. You know, if you're, if you're a buyer, it's harder to be a seller right now. Um, but that said, um, interest rates. So, if you're a buyer, it's harder to be a seller just because of all the costs involved. Or what? What do you mean there? Sorry, um, if it's harder to be a seller right now, it's oh, as a buyer you have more time okay. to to make a considered offer than have to offer on the spot. But really, kind of continuing the theme of, of last time, of you know, there's a rebalancing going on between buyers and sellers. Wouldn't call it a crash. Certainly, appreciations have. have slowed down, um, price reductions are common, property sitting for two weeks, three weeks is common, yeah. and so it's a good time to keep an eye on the market if you've been shopping and kind of tapped out for another reason, which interest rates, I think we finally had a win mm. yeah, for a week last week. We finally had a, a winning week, which is not necessarily to say that rates went down significantly, but the market helped serve mm. finally. And, and I think that's indicative of, you know, we have a busy week coming up with the Fed. But there's a lot of noise out there right now saying that maybe the Fed's thinking they've finally done enough or, or at least they can see the end. Gotcha. And um, maybe we'll start to see inflation come down and that will tend to relieve the rates. and So, so yeah.
0: some stabilizing for now in terms of yeah. rates? Yeah. Got it. And maybe cool.
1: some reductions in the near future. Got it. In, in in the future. Let's not say the near future. Sure. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, um, we'll we'll shift over to the mortgage question of the week, which this week I, uh, you know, part of this is me learning, um, and I am still unsure, a little unclear about how and when someone's job change affects their ability to qualify. Um, Some of it, obviously, there's not firm rules on and it just depends on how it's underwritten, um but there is some some extent of there are general principles of if you have a job change to this kind of job or from this kind of place within this time then you need this many years or um so i i know that that is that is pretty general but that's that's kind of my level of understanding right now um i came out of I, we, you know, my wife and I, Holly and I recently bought a, call, bought a house and we came out of college. Um, so that was a factor right out of college into related careers that we had a degree in. Um, so our, th- that, that kind of income was able to qualify, but I'm not sure if, you know, if someone has been working um, a salary position for two years and they move to a new company and they have a better salary and it's still a salary, does that qualify? So what are, what are the principles there?
1: Yeah, so I think you touched on all the right things. In general, it's almost always preferable not to change. However, there are some changes that are, that are you know, completely fine. So, for example, if you are an engineer that works for Boeing and you decide to go work for a different aerospace company, that, or, or even a completely non-aerospace company, but you're an engineer, you're performing similar tasks, and you go from salary to salary, no problem at all. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you can now the longer the gap between jobs, that could create a problem. If you're if you're um, if your gap between the one job and the other mm-hmm. job is let's say six months or more, then there's gonna need to be an explanation. But even then generally, as long as you're going from a fixed salary position to a fixed or, or even if you're going from same. a salary into a fixed salary position, that's really what's key you're going into a fixed salary position so it's in the same line of work generally generally, but it doesn't necessarily and that can be very broadly construed yeah. line of work can be very yeah. broadly construed and so if you're an office manager for a real estate company and you become office manager for the septic company that's the same line of work you're yeah. an office manager and, yeah. and if you're salaried in one you go to a salary to another you're fine where you run into problems is even in a salaried situation let's say you're salaried and you go to salary let's say you, You work for a food distribution company and your salary plus bonus, you go to work for the major competitor of that food distribution company, same line of work, same job, salary plus bonus, that could be a problem if you need the bonus to qualify because the bonus is the variable component. And that's the thing that underwriting now has some questions to answer as to, okay, you used to earn this bonus over here and we see what the terms of your employment are But you don't have a history of earning the bonus here. Bonus here, you Mm -hmm. earned it here, and so that's where you could run into trouble. You certainly can run into trouble if you go from salary to hourly, or even hourly to hourly. Let's say you work Mm -hmm. at Fred Meyer's, and then you go to work for Safeway, and you've been working at Fred Meyer's, and you work at twenty-two dollars an hour. But by by nature, most of those jobs are hourly Mm -hmm. and variable. And maybe you've been working forty hours a week, and maybe even overtime. But now you move to a new job. There's no guaranteed number of hours. And does that
0: matter if you've been if you were at Fred Meyer for a year or two years, and then you end up at the new it, place that
1: it, doesn't? It does matter. They, they will have an easier time if you go from you know Fred Meyer's to Safeway. Mm-hmm. You'll still have a harder time using bonus income yeah. or overtime income or those sorts of things yeah. because you don't have the pattern at the new place. And so you'll still have a, yeah. a hard time. But if you have two years history at Fred Myers and then you go to SAFE, well, you'll probably be able to use your base salary at some historical yeah. work average as long as there's some indication of new work. So if you if you make that move, because what I hear a lot, a lot of times or
0: um, see asked a lot of times is the two-year rule, um, which I would guess is more of just kind of a general... You're very safe if you have right. that two years kind of thing, but there's doesn't mean you can't qualify with that income before um, so what if you have been at Fred Meyers who knows you know a year then you shift over to Safeway you've been there a year and then you apply for a loan how is that income going to be counted
1: Really, again your 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 base pay hourly pay as long as you, you have a history, basically, if you move from Fred Meyer to Safeway, and then ever since you started Safeway, your hours have gone down a little bit that whole time. Mm-hmm. You've gradually gone from, you know, Freddy's, you were working 40 hours a week plus some overtime. At Safeway, you started at 40, but for the last two months, now you've been at 30. You see that decline, that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. But generally, if you're working that same pattern and you can support that pattern, then you're probably going to be fine. Where you also run into trouble is if you go from Let's say you go from a a salary position to self-employed. That's that's a real challenge. There are some very rare exceptions where if you're in a position where you're moving into self-employment, doing the exact same thing, serving the exact same companies, and maybe have some contracts to back that up, then maybe Mm. you'll get an underwriter to buy that income. But generally, if you move from employed by somebody else to self-employed, you're going to need probably two years, and that's two tax returns. You might be able to get away with one, but you're probably going to need to count on two tax yeah. returns in order to qualify, or if you move from salary to hourly. You, know, you move from salary to hourly, and that can be a challenge as well. You know you had this salary, and, and if you move into an hourly position where the employer will vouch that you are guaranteed a certain minimum of hours a week, then they'll probably give you that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there, it seems like that I, I've still got a lot of questions, there's a lot of nuances, can't get into everything there. Um, but I, I do want to say I did before getting into mortgage specifically. I didn't even. Uh, we might be making an assumption here, um, even talking about qualifying income. I didn't have a sense of what what that meant, why that mattered. Um, so, can you explain? I, I, I could take a stab at it, but you're going to be a little more articulate because still, still, even that figuring figuring out all the details. But can you explain? What is qualifying income? Why does it matter? And you know if if you if all of your income qualifies, um, you're not going to use all of your income for for your mortgage payment. So why how do, how does that factor in?
1: Right. So one of the primary metrics that that uh, underwriters will look at in determining, whether they should grant you the loan or not is your capacity to handle that that debt Mm -hmm. that you're asking them to to authorize you to take on and and the way they measure that is with metrics and they use these metrics and they use them over millions and millions of transactions and they measure default risk and they come up with these metrics that say okay if you have shown a history of responsible credit use and you're asking to take on new credit and that credit combined with any other monthly debts you have, put your minimum monthly obligations at 50% of your gross income. That's what's called debt-to-income ratio. And that's one of the primary metrics that they're going to evaluate. They're going to evaluate your credit. They're, they're going to evaluate the property. You know, They're going to evaluate your assets, whether you have enough funds to put into the deal and, and where the funds came from. But really, the the one of the biggest things that they're going to look at is your capacity mm-hmm. to handle that. And that capacity is measured in terms of your historical demonstrated ability to handle credit and your just your raw debt-to-income ratio. Yeah. And and that qualifying income is what is the, the denominator in that. They'll take your, your, your total debt divided by your qualifying income or mm-hmm. your, your gross monthly income. And that percentage... For Fannie and Freddie, most deals needs to be 50% yeah. or less. And so what that qualified... It's not that they're saying we need enough qualified income to cover the mortgage payment because they know you need to eat and you need to yeah yeah cover other expenses as well. 50%. So 50% is the max typically yeah. they'll allow you to go to. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense. All right. Well, um, we're going to shift
0: gears a little bit to our conversation about work, which this week is talking about money and... Specifically, dealing with the dilemma of is is money a good motivation for work? Um, I think no matter what what your world view is, no matter what what approach you take to life, you've probably felt that dilemma to some extent uh, where you know you you know that money doesn't ultimately make you happy, but at the same time it does make you happy um, and so. How do you reconcile those two different realities? That there's no ultimate happiness in it, but it does make you happy, and you do want money, and it, it enables you to um, live an enjoyable lifestyle. And um, so, how do you reconcile those? And is it a is it a good motivation to to work? And where does it fit in your mindset and thinking about work? So that's what yeah. we're going to tackle. Um, Dad, you want to take that away a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I I, I think. I want to borrow a little bit from the rules of logic um, to dig a little deeper into the question. There's, there's, there's something called a causal f- fallacy in logic, and, and that's you know when you, when you assume that a necessary condition is also a sufficient condition to support an argument. So you have a difference between necessary and sufficient mm-hmm. conditions. And, and one example of this fallacy is, um, I have gas in my car, therefore it should be running. Mm-hmm. Having gas in your car is a necessary condition for your car running, but it's not a sufficient condition. It's not the only one for your car to run. You, you, yeah, there could be lots of things that could be wrong with it where you've met a necessary condition, but you don't have sufficient conditions. Oh. And, and I and I think thinking of the question of is money a good motivator for work, mm-hmm. you know, is it is it a good motivator for our work ethic, helps us avoid uh, two ditches. I think that are common in answering this question. One is that money is. Is nothing, or even a bad thing. You know that I think that's one ditch that people often fall into is, you know, money's bad, money's evil. That is, you know, and and you know should that should not factor in at all. It should not factor in at all. And the other is, money is everything or a sufficient end mm-hmm. for meaningful work. And and I think that we can see that you know the one ditch is is clearly not right. You know, money isn't in and of itself evil. It's not a bad thing. Um, God created us to need money. You know, we need money to function, and certainly that's borne out in the scriptures. That uh, he, he's charged us to work to get money. In Second Thessalon, you know, in Second Thessalonians three, Paul says, "But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition that he received from us. For you yourselves know you ought to follow us. For though we were dis for we were not disorderly among you. And this is how he's defining that. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And so you see here that, that, that Paul elevates money, right? He had to work in order to have money, in order to provide for himself. Um, we also see it in Proverbs. It says, you know, Proverbs fourteen twenty three says, in all labor there is profit. But idle chatter leads only to poverty. And, and the profit motive is often demonized. Mm. Right? It's often demonized. People think that, that this profit motive somehow taints or, or defiles whatever the activity is. Yeah. And, and really, profit motive ought to be lionized. Yeah, I think yeah. You, you get... I mean, even the phrase where, especially
0: you get it in business, where it's business people need to give back, Someone mentioned that recently in, in a class I had, and uh, just the idea that you need to give back suggests that you've been taking um, and, and that that's a bad thing and you need to make up on it, which, you know, there's a lot in that, but just that phrasing suggests the idea that, you know, the idea that, that you making a profit is in a sense taking from someone and you need to give back to that, and I think it does have that stigma.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's interesting that you bring that up because because that the, yeah that same phrase as oils always you know kind of bothered me as yeah. well partly because you know as, as Christians if we are involved in any sort of acts of charity you know, we're, we're supposed to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing mm-hmm. we don't do those good works to yeah. be seen and so part of it part of me you know, you know is is offended by that or doesn't doesn't really like that. Yeah, But but the other thing, too, is, is it begs the question, to who? Yeah, mm-hmm. you, know, you give back. Well, we're, you know, it's always to the community, right? Yeah, we're giving yeah. back. To our community. But, but it's not the community that gave you the job. Yeah. It was God. Yeah. You know, It was God yeah. who gives you the skills, who gives you the ability to work, and then you go work and you serve the community.
0: Yeah. And you didn't take yeah. anything from them in the first place. Yeah, you're
1: actually giving to them. I mean, that's Just the, the whole nature of, of our work, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're created so that we can serve the community. So in a sense... The community ought to be giving back to us. Yeah. you know, yeah. and and you know, it kind of feels weird to say yeah. that, and, and I don't really mean that literally, but it really is. But if there is more exchange yeah. going on, it's got to be that. Yeah, direction. it's got to be another direction, yeah. and and if we're doing a good job, the community, and then you do see so, you do see that sometimes. Yeah. sometimes you see communities that honor businesses mm-hmm. that really have contributed to their their communities and, and a lot of times that has to do with stuff not related to their primary purpose yeah, yeah yeah and we ought to really see more of that where where communities say thank you for running an amazing car dealership business mm-hmm. you know, because you've really made our our community a wonderful place by running a good business providing us resources that we need so anyway yeah. that's a little bit of a yeah, side get... but but the profit motive you know we we ought to lionize the profit motive you know, God again created the profit motive. It says in, in Proverbs sixteen twenty six. It says, "The person who labors, labors for himself, for his hungry mouth, drives him on." Mm-hmm. And there's there's hints of you know Adam Smith in there, right? Adam Smith picked up that idea of the invisible hand. That, you know, his his idea when he wrote the Wealth of Nations, where he observed that these communities, these nations that prosper, don't prosper because there's this totalitarian state overseeing and and manipulating everything whether it be a socialism or communism but it's the invisible hand of private motive that drives everyone to do the best job they can so they can get the resources they need to feed themselves Mm -hmm. and so i i think the profit motive all that to say that you know that ditch is is a ditch you know money is not a bad thing but it's not a sufficient thing yeah yeah and that that's where i think i think money is not a sufficient motive um and and i would i would argue that because you know we start with with genesis chapter one where god tells us you know he says let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea the birds of the air the cattle over um, over the cattle over the all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female then he blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth subdue it have dominion over the earth and the sea over the birds of the air over every living thing that moves of the earth this is what we call the cultural mandate God created us in his image and he is a creator and he created us to be creators Mm -hmm. so so I would say that money is a necessary condition and therefore good it's mm-hmm. a good motive but it's not a sufficient condition yeah. we shouldn't look at our work and say all this is about is earning a dollar mm-hmm. and that and and if that's all it does you know, maybe that's the best highest motive that you need to provide for your family and that's the best thing you can do to earn a dollar maybe there's other things you'd rather be doing but that's the best thing you can do to earn sufficient income Mm -hmm. and that's fine Mm -hmm. but you should always see your work as you're participating in god's creative work yeah we are participating with him
0: yeah yeah they're definitely not exclusive motives um and i don't know if there's i mean in a sense there is a the the there is a hierarchy of the motives where, you know, that's the, I think, the first and best motive um, comes from Genesis there, like you're talking about, of imitate God, who is the first creator, and and let's go and create. Let's go and use what he's given us and worship him by imitating him. Um, and creating is obviously um, a a loose term here. To describe any anything that is fruitful, anything that brings about a good, fruitful result. Um, but to to the point of the hierarchy, it's if there if there is a hierarchy um, of those motives, then you know understanding that doesn't need to mean you need to be emotionally excited about what you're doing, right. but understanding that. You know, your work has value because it, it imitates and it works in the economy of God's creation and is fruitful because it pleases Him by producing something for someone else. is very high in the hierarchy, but that doesn't eliminate or exclude um, money, enjoying the good things that are part of creation for yourself um, and, and for your family and providing for your family and serving those around you. Um, It certainly doesn't exclude that. I don't know if you need to break it down into a hierarchy, um, but both are certainly uh, praised and and valuable.
1: Yeah, no, I think think it is useful and difficult, like you said. And I think the way maybe to think about that is all of the things being equal, then I think you would put the creative value Mm -hmm. of a vocation above the monetary value, all of the things being equal. But if you had something like this where you yeah, the creative value is way up here but the but the monetary value is way up one here. One job position. Yeah, one yeah, job, job, job position. The creative value is way up yeah. here. And it's, you can't quantify these sure. things, but sure. but thinking philosophically. You, know, you can right? serve hundreds the, of people yeah, and creative, it's something you love doing
0: yeah. and you're talented at. Yeah, and, yeah.
1: and you're just, yeah. creative value is way up here, but the monetary value is way up here. But in order to support your family you need monetary to be here. Mm-hmm. Well then you need monetary to be here mm-hmm. you know, because yeah, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, the scripture mm-hmm. says, right? So provision is an important part of that job that you have, yeah. but it is hard to, to rank. You know, yeah. it's interesting that, um, you know, ironically, in many ways, it was the church that was responsible for the diminishing the meaning and value of work it was kind of the medieval church. The mm-hmm. medieval church was heavily inf- influenced by Greek philosophy, and they had this whole dualistic system, yeah. right? You had the, you know, the matter was corrupt and evil, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and and the spirit was what was good, and and that led the medieval theologians and to come to you know to the point where all non-clerical work, non-clerical in the sense of the church, non-explicitly Christian work, was was demeaning and and diminished, and only the only people who were actually called um, their work was called a vocation, which you know the the Latin meaning to call. Mm-hmm. The only People's jobs, who who had their their work called a vocation, were were Christian you know, monks spirit, and priests yeah. and you know, whatever that was. People whose work was spiritual. That, that was spiritual. Yeah, and it was really ironically today is November first. It was the Reformation. Mm. Really, that 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 brought an end to that. That restored the dignity in all work. Yeah. And I'd like to read something um, here. I just uh, it's, it's interesting what what the Reformation does. It says. The Reformers contrasted the monastic call from the world, from the world, with the biblical call into the world. As Jesus says to the Father in 1715, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one, while still within the world. Calvin articulated the view of ordinary work so distinctive that it later became called the Protestant work ethic. He taught that individual believer has a vocation to serve God in the world in every sphere of human existence lending a new dignity and meaning to ordinary work and so it really was the Reformation that restored dignity to being a mortgage broker Mm -hmm. to being a bus driver to doing what every sphere of human activity is is under the hand of God and under that creative imitation of God where we're to go out and fulfill this cultural mandate Mm -hmm. And, and that's what's missing a lot of people view their jobs if they think of it at all in Christian terms is either A, just something I, I, I do to provide money for my you know christian activities to support real christian yeah, work yeah. you know and, and so people a lot of people think of their jobs in that way that it's just it, it has no inherent value in it itself and we really need to think of our jobs in terms of no we're co-creating eternal God.
0: it's eternal work it yeah. has eternal significance yeah. even you know bus driving mortgage yeah. it has not just Christian ministry um, right. has eternal significance. Yeah, and I think on the other side of that, uh, you know, um, or or maybe just more specifically, God created matter. He He loves it, and He loves and and there's kind of and this this may be not the this this may be a stretch of the the meaning Jesus had in mind. But He said He came so that we can have life and have it abundantly. Mm-hmm. And I think that includes now yeah. um, on this earth, enjoying, we've been given matter to enjoy it. And um, I, don't, I don't have the verse pulled up, but Ecclesiastes talks about um, enjoying the labor so that we can enjoy the riches and the fruit that comes from it. And, right. and um, you know, that is a good thing, enjoying a good meal and, and enjoying a, a good sports game that you maybe had to pay good money for to get good seats to, and, and those are all good things. Um, and and a good so the work itself is good and then the money that comes from it that enables you to enjoy it is good and of course that's not to undermine the value of then generosity with that money and selflessness and sacrifice sure. um, but it's important you know we always face pendulum swings and it's important right now in a time where a, a not not just this year right now but just a a time in our culture where um, the Christian response to materialism is um, that dualism that you're talking about, and um, we need that emphasis on the good of, of matter and, and the things yeah. of earth. So let's get a little bit practical with that. Uh, I think on, on two, uh, two questions come to mind that I want to consider on a practical level. One is just on a daily basis of how you factor in that motivation of, of money, and one is let's take a scenario where you are choosing a job. You you mentioned it a little bit. Um, let's start with that scenario. Um, say say you are choosing a job. Someone's got an opportunity coming up, or or they're in a job that you know is really meaningful. Um, you, you know you have day to day interaction with people that. You're able to disciple and and you're able to have an impact on and um, encourage, but um, you know you don't have you don't have as much money or you, you're just not as driven for it or something along those lines. And you have an opportunity to take something a little more lucrative um, and something that maybe is easier in a sense. Um, there's no right or wrong there, but what are the things to consider? In that
1: scenario, well, that's a that's a great question. It, it is hard to be very objective with those types of decisions. Yeah, other than you know, as because you've laid the conditions, you set the conditions that says the existing job is sufficient, right? The, the, the existing job has you're making enough money. It's okay. You're, you're not. Yeah. You, you're providing for your family. Mm-hmm. And, and you're contributing, and it's not, a, it's not a, an evil work, it's a, you know, it's a faithful work, it's yeah, a good work, it's a lawful work, it's a good work. Probably so, something
0: that some people would see, you know, say, the, the comparison I'm trying to get at is something like that, that people would see as more um, spiritual, more of that giving back nature, um, versus something that is less seen that way,
1: and more lucrative but more profit. yeah yeah no i i yeah that that's that is a tough one and i and i think it goes back to our earlier conversation about you know, the difference between those two different factors I, I do think all other things being equal that if you have two jobs that are equal on the monetary scale but one is if you had a way of measuring that mm-hmm. much more meaningful on, on you know, in terms of of, of fulfilling the cultural mandate sure. then sure you take that one but how you compare two different jobs I, I, I think it's very hard I, I think money is a fine it, it is in a fully acceptable condition or criterion that you use in mm-hmm. order to evaluate whether to take the new job or not now of course you have to think about other things I, you know, I, I remember when I moved out of uh, being an employee to self-employment and that that was a big decision, and it involved risk. Mm-hmm. It involved risk. I had three kids at the time. You weren't around yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Cole wasn't around yet. We had three. You know, we had had three kids at the time, and my highest and yet best safest use was as a CPA. But I I didn't love it, mm-hmm. uh, and and I I'd spent eleven years trying to love it. Mm-hmm. And, and I could never get to the point, and, and because I didn't love it, I never felt I could be great at it. Mm-hmm. You know, I always felt like I would always be fighting that this was this was drudgery to me, and therefore I wasn't really going to go the extra mile and be very great at it. And, and And at some level, no matter sort of the inherent differences between being a CPA and being a mortgage broker, I was... Never going to be as good as the but Now, now at the time, I didn't know I was going to become a mortgage director. Right? So I went into an accounting aspect of a mortgage company, and that led to that self-employment decision. But it was one of those things where, where, where spiritually, I, I, it was kind of depressing you know, to be. And I won't say I was depressed, but it yeah. was. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the work, and it was drudgery. Yeah. And the idea of going into work, and so the opportunity to move into something different. Was, was exciting. And, and then when I went from there, I went to become you know, involved in the finance as a salaried employee, the finance division of a bank, working with a mortgage company, then into self-employment, becoming an independent mortgage broker. There was a great risk involved in that. But that really fired me up. There was a lot of excitement and interest and enthusiasm. And so I, I, I do think there's an element of that involved in making that decision. There's risk involved and you need to know, you, know, you need to take that into account. It doesn't mean you're always going to make the right decisions. It doesn't mean if you take a risk and fail and suffer as a result of it, that it was the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. But it is something that you need to evaluate the risk and evaluate your responsibilities. And know that, okay, I have three kids. I have a wife and three kids to take care of. and. Yeah, you know, am I taking a really foolish risk, or am I taking a risk that's necessary in order to move into that? So I, 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 do think there's 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 always going to be a very subjective element there, but I think absolutely the idea that hey, but this could result in significantly increased income, and and that's exciting to me for my family, and I think I would want to go for it. I think that's a fine uh, yeah. motivation to to factor into that decision making.
0: Yeah. Yeah, do what you want to do, and money is not a bad, uh, bad motivator in that. You know, like again, there's no, there's no right answer, but do the thing that's good that you want to do, and know that money is pursuing, pursuing the increased money is is not a bad thing. Right. Great. Well, uh, let's briefly touch on kind of the other question, which was on a day-to-day basis. How do you think about that? Um, do, do you, if it is a good thing, do you set monetary goals? Um, you know, obviously there's it, there's some work where you're just paid a salary, and what you do isn't gonna affect that directly. Um, but maybe you have a, a side hustle that you want to pursue, and you set monetary goals there. Or maybe you know that you know you could get an increased pay if you have these certain certain actions um so what's a good way to take what we've been talking about say you know okay you know I've been kind of toying with that idea of I want it I want to get more money out of my job or consider a job with more more money or um and now I, I feel a little bit more comfortable pursuing that and being mindful um what's a good way to then to To let that factor in and pursue that. Do you Do you set monetary goals specifically, or um, have you found any helpful ways to think about it on a day to day basis?
1: I think that setting goals, the most successful people in just about any endeavor, you know, any industry, most businesses, especially in leadership roles, are are you know are are characterized by habitually setting goals, um, I'm not one of those, I'm terrible at that, you know, and and that's just frank admission, you know, is that I just tend to pursue, you know, every day and try, you know, I I do try and get better, I like getting better, and, and I look for other people who are doing it better than me and try and grow. Yeah, but I don't set specific goals. But I, you know, to answer your question directly, so I just I don't want to be a hypocrite and yeah and yeah. answer the question in the way that I believe is true. I, I, I believe setting goals is super important, mm-hmm. super helpful. Yeah, you know, because when you set goals, it forces you then to, you know, then then you you take those goals, then you break it down into okay, what are the activities that are required to achieve those goals, and then what are the sub activities that I have to do, and then what are the Interim steps that I need to take in order to achieve the first part of that goal. So, so I, I, it, it it's not hard to see why that's a valuable mm-hmm. part, you know, part yeah. of the, of successful business people's lives. You know, it's yeah. because it forces you to break down, and then to you know stratify. It's kind of like here, these aren't ours, you know. But the the idea of hustle, grind, and execute, you know, when when you when you have specific things laid out. Before,